Hello, welcome to Lambda Forms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lambda Forms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Derek Allen, the singer and guitarist of Lower Automation, a high-energy mathcore band from Chicago. Lower Automation are about to release their self-titled debut full-length on Zagima Beach on July 12th. Recorded in a five-day stretch during the summer of 2020, the album is a blistering and nerve-wracking listen. Alan and I have crossed paths a few times in both the Chicago hardcore scene and while Lower Automation were on tour a few years back. So I was delighted to finally have him on the podcast to talk about his early interest in industrial music, why he's attracted to rhythmic complexity, his unique approach to vocals, and much more. Thank you for listening. So it's been a minute since I've, I've seen you. I feel like it has, there was yeah. that one show that y'all played in like Bushwick in like 2018 18. or so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yep. So... What have you been up to since then? Let's see. So, band-wise, we split ways with our drummer at the time. Actually, the drummer that you saw us with isn't even our. wasn't even our. He was a fill-in. So, mm-hmm. um, he was help. He helped us out for a long time, and then uh, we we got a we got a new drummer in uh, about a year and a half ago now. And then we played like four shows, and then everything shut down. Yeah, that's about it. Not a, not a whole lot else. But what about you? Oh, for myself? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm no longer writing about music. So I'm, I started up the podcast, put out a remix record. It's so weird to talk about this stuff because I feel like there is this giant like black hole where like there's stuff that I did pre-2020 and then yeah, everything else. Like, I, I was doing a bunch of touring um, in the summers, like t- summer 2019. I, I did like a month long full U.S. with some indie bands. Oh, I remember uh, seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. And so like those bands were keeping me pretty busy and like Lambda forms wise, it's all been sort of like one step at a time towards the new record. But, you know, I, and I'm just starting now to kind of begin to see the finish line of the recording process for that. So that's that, those are the big things. And then, yeah, moving from, you know, the writing about music thing to just doing my own podcast on my own time, which has been nice. Sure. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Did we? Did we? We 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 did play a show together in Chicago at some point when I, think, I was living there, right? Yeah, I think at the Burlington. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was at the one that I did like the solo thing. Yeah, and we were all really, <laughs> or at least I was really into that. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> you had that, thank you. Um, someone was doing like a light thing or something, or not light, yeah, like a projector, or some kind of digital thing that was really sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, was that's awesome. My, uh, my friend Parker, who played bass in the the band version of that that's right. version of Lambda Forms, okay. yeah, that's a very funny time for <laughs> for me to think back on. Like, really strange way of uh, of going about it, but I'm I'm glad it worked. I'm glad you dug it. Yeah, I thought that was awesome. I mean, I I've, I I don't know. I think I I think I feel um, not simp- maybe sympathy, but like I, when I play solo shows and stuff, I mostly hate it. Mm. I don't like being on stage by myself. And so I can relate to that. And you, I don't know, it was just really cool. It sounded better than just like the typical one man, one man kind of thing. And uh, having the lights up, or the projector up there was really cool too. I think that helped right. A lot. I feel like if that's the thing, if you're going to do it, you have to find ways to make it feel not just like karaoke yeah. or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like there, there's got to be some sort of visual aspect or something that makes it like distinct from the experience of like just listening to the record at home. For sure. You know, but when you talk about doing solo stuff, is that like the the Formans project, or did you also do like solo stuff under your own name? Yeah, yeah, um, Formans stuff, and then also like in college and for a while after, like right up until lower through the, maybe the first year of lower automation, I was doing a lot of like solo guitar sets, hmm. uh, like noise kind of thing, gotcha. um, just because I didn't have a band at that point and. People were asking me if I could play, and I was just like, okay, well, I can do this. Uh, or if our band could play. And I was like, no, but I can do this. So at that point, there was like lower automation stuff, but not a band lower automation? Probably, yeah. It's kind of hard to, yeah, because that, 
the first EP, um, I think, was mostly written when I like my senior year of college, mm-hmm. and then it took a while to find people to to play with, as it normally does. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, that I can certainly relate to. <laughs> um, when did why did you start writing it? Like, what what inspired you to to get started on that project? The so my yeah so right after my junior year of college, I uh, woke up one day. And my left hand was like numb. Mm. And <laughs> it's kind of a weird story. And uh, I freaked out because I was I was teaching guitar for a living. I did that for like six years. And um, I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And I ended up having an issue with uh, my fingers going numb and not kind of really cooperating um, for the better part of a year. And it turns out that it was like a... It's called thoracic outlet syndrome. So like all the nerves pass through, you know, your the front of your chest and shoulder kind of right here. Mm-hmm. And if that get, if, the, if that bundle of nerves gets pinched, it's going to cause an issue with your arm. And basically it was just like postural stuff. So really what I'm not big into chiropractors, but that actually is what helped me the most. Interesting. Huh? But anyway, during that whole period, um, I just before that I was making a lot of electronic stuff. And um, that's kind of what I studied in, in college, too. It's like sound art, noise kind of stuff. And um, during that phase where I couldn't really play guitar much, it made me just really want to play guitar a lot. And so at the end of that, I just started playing guitar all the time and writing stuff. And that's kind of how Lower Automation started, was I was just ready to kind of be done with electronics for a little bit. Hmm. That's interesting. I was going to ask, like, which of those two impulses, the your electronic side and your, like, rock band side came first and which one you see as, like, the core of your identity. But, so it sounds like you would, it, it's a pendulum kind of thing where you had swung out of electronic into into playing yeah. bands and, and doing more of the, the guitar thing. Yeah, I would say, I, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think um, I started playing, like, my first kind of introduction into music was, like, piano and guitar, you know. But pretty mm-hmm. early on, I was really into like industrial stuff. I mean, as a child, um, into so not like good industrial, but you know, uh, stuff with like weird noises and stuff. That's what it kind of drew Can me you, in. Like, cite an example. Like, what what kind of stuff are you thinking? Oh God. Okay, so this is really embarrassing and not cool. There. So I grew up in a Christian home, and was mostly encouraged to listen to Christian music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a you know '90s, early 2000s. There's a band called Skillet, um, who I'm sure you've heard. Skillet, wow, yeah, I haven't Not, heard. Like, I feel like the the meme of like the crab smoking a cigarette. Like, I haven't heard that in years, you know. Dude, they're <laughs> yeah, they're kind of a joke. I mean, no, they are a joke. It's it's like it's terrible. But anyway, their first couple albums in the '90s were they were like this kind of weird industrial thing, and you would never guess it from listening to their stuff now. Uh-huh. It sounds like a totally different band, and. Some of the sound design on two albums in particular, Invincible and Alien Youth, I still go back and listen to, and I'm like, that is so cool. Um, hmm. Really cheesy, you know, bad lyrics, mostly dumb music, but there's there's like a couple songs that are really cool, I think, still. Anyway, that was, I think, one of my, one of the first kind of like bands with electronic stuff that I really got into. And I, th- I mean, I, I like, I mean, I think we're the same age, so like, the end of the 90s, early 2000s, electronic stuff was everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think, part of it, too, just hearing that, you know, all over the place. Right. Like, this was the era of, like, drum and bass and, like, big beat yeah. music and, like, all of the movie trailers and stuff like that, you know. So it was it was very ambiently around, you know. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I remember, like, being in, like, fourth and fifth grade and turning on, like, VH1 or something, and it was all electronic stuff. And mm-hmm. like it was like electronic bands and POD, and that was <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what was your like on ramp into like secular industrial, <laughs> and like that sort of stuff? Like, how did you break out of the the Christian rock version of it? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's I, you know I honestly don't know, but I remember listening to Nine Inch Nails when I was like in eighth grade, mm-hmm. and I think that was like right when With Teeth came out. And so, so maybe that's, maybe that's how I got like looped back into it was like, you know, that was kind of a big deal when that came out as his first album in like however many years since the nineties, I think. And 
I remember hearing it on the radio and then just being like really into the sounds. Mm -hmm. And then Year Zero came out when I was, I think, a freshman in high school. And I still listen to that album a lot. That album just like totally blew my mind. Um, a lot of it is, I think, kind of cheesy and like he's not what you would call a good lyricist. But um, the sound design on that album is incredible. Mm-hmm. I think that was a huge thing for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being like sort of disappointed with with teeth at the time. I really like the sound design on that record, but mm-hmm. I think some of the songs don't quite uh, pass the muster Definitely. on in retrospect but then when year zero came out and it had that like incredibly like daring and like almost minimalist just sort of like fucked up synthesizer kind of sound and the fact that he made it all on tour i know like just it's like well now what like what the fuck dude like you completely (laughs) you know raised the bar to like another level with that sort of thing you know and Listening to that, I feel like uh, it was like this kind of transition into like the later half of his career. Like I sort of feel like that that's the record that sort of broke open the like later Nine Inch Nails stuff away from like the 90s more alt rock sounding yeah. part of his career. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel that that's a yeah fantastic record. I listen to that one all the time. That song Vessel, mm. I think it's track five. That's that's probably like top three favorite Nine Inch Nails songs all time for me. Mm. And The Warning, I think. That's the, oh, the warning yeah. is so sick. So, the, like with the spectrograph thing yeah. and all that. Like, yeah. It's so it's just so, yeah, it's freaky. And it's just, um, what I think what really drew me into that stuff was there's no drummer on like any, on, like, any of those songs. And there's not like a, also on All the Love in the World on uh, with Teeth, for the first half of the song anyway, there's like all of these percussive sounds, but you, you they're not kicks. They're not really functioning as kicks or snares or hi-hats or anything like that. And I've always been really interested in that. So there's definitely, yeah, especially the warning that you just have. You, you, yeah, the drums are just incredible on that album, I think. So, yeah, I mean, now like, after you gained an interest in that style of music and that kind of production, how quickly did you start trying to figure out how to make it yourself? Uh, when I could afford to. <laughs> I think a few, yeah, some, I think uh, I think I was a junior in high school when I got started getting synths and stuff. Were you playing music before that? Like Yeah, on, on yeah. Guitar? I was playing in like kind of alternative rock or punk bands in high school. Because mm-hmm. I loved, I, I still really love playing in a live band setting. And you just don't have that, uh, I don't want to say excitement, but maybe like adrenaline or something that you just don't have with um, electronics in a live situation. And so I always kind of felt divided where I would do, I would play in bands and then at home I'd work on electronic stuff by myself, but I never, I honestly never played that live until like 2017, I think. Was that just a matter of like getting it good enough or like lack of interest in doing it live? Like what, what do you think was like the hold up for that? I think both. Yeah, it definitely wasn't good enough before. Um, I mean, I played in a band that that we used stuff, you know, electronic stuff, but it was still like rock band oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what really sparked it was uh, after a year or two of playing in low automation, I started working on electronic stuff again. Um, I had gotten, I was starting to do engineering stuff, and I had been working on like hip hop and R and B, so I wanted to start like producing stuff. So I just started, you know, making stuff every day. Uh, most of it was just, you know, terrible. Um, and then, yeah, I think sometime in 2017, I like kind of came up with a collection of songs and we got asked to open for street sex and Dalek at, um, beat kitchen that, in oh, that fuck year. Yeah. And dude, it was amazing. That's, uh, that's a hell of a bill. God. Yeah. It was so good. <laughs> and one of, I think it was our drummer was not able to do that night. So I was like, well, I'll just play it like an electronic set. And that was the first time I ever played one by myself. Or no, well, that was the first time I ever played by myself without a guitar. Yeah, I think that was like the fall of 2017. Um, and I've done it a few times since, but at that show I was playing more like songs. And now I'm doing more, or not now I guess, but before COVID I was doing more kind of noise-based stuff. Just for a bit more context, like as we build towards talking about the the new lower automation record, what were the sort of like shows and like what was the scene that you were kind of operating in in bands prior to the college and switching over more toward the electronic world? 
so I'm from the west suburbs of Chicago. So basically, that's that scene was basically dead by the time I got in high school. There were just like tiny bits hanging on. So there was one bar that had all ages shows on Sundays, and we played there. Like we were in the cycle of bands that played there. There were there were like VFWs that kind of thing. I mean, occasionally we would play in this. Actually, I don't even know if we played in the city until I was in college, but. I mean, I, I did play in bands that toured and stuff before college, but it was kind of all over. Some kind of like punk bands, some really alternative, it, it, some very embarrassing bands. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's high school. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't good. <laughs> Who among us? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think we could play okay. It was just not good, not good music. But uh, yeah, a little more, a little more mainstream than I think I kind of, the reason why I started making music on my own initially was because well one because I wanted to play electronic stuff but two because no one wanted to experiment with stuff the way I wanted to in any band I could find Mm -hmm. I did not live in like a musical area there was one other band at my high school um, and it wasn't a small high school it was just not a very artistic community Mm -hmm. so uh, it was just really hard to find people to play with and I did it on Craigslist. Like no, I never knew anyone. Um, and so I just started, yeah, randomly reaching out to people on, or getting in contact with people online. And, and that's how I started, you know, playing in these other bands that toured and stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. And so when did you, you started teaching music in college as well? Yeah. You said, mm-hmm. uh, what made you start picking that up? Cause it was uh, money, uh, and it was yeah. it was something I didn't hate at first. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was yeah, it was just it was easy to do. Um, I mean, I started playing guitar when I was like eight, so I was mostly teaching guitar, um, some voice, and uh, would occasionally get roped into doing piano. But um, I am really bad at piano, so I could only teach like the very very basics. But yeah, I did that because it was it, it was uh, you know music related and. Uh, flexible was I think one of the biggest pulls to it you know and I kept that I kept doing that until like two years ago and that allowed me to tour and do all this stuff so really yeah I think the main reason I did that was because it was flexible I did not really enjoy it Um, (laughs) I don't miss it at all okay like I I like having and I still occasionally have like you know a couple students here and there or something like I enjoy that but um, I never want to go back to having 40 students a week um, yeah, that sounds like a lot. It's just way too much. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm kind of I'm just done with it. <laughs> but so you had like theoretical training in your in your background. Mm-hmm. What were you doing like sight reading and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I got I was really really nerdy in high school with um, music theory and I mean my favorite band in middle school was Dream Theater. Um, <laughs> we could go on a whole other yeah, yeah. tangent about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I was I was all into that kind of stuff. The, and then I studied classical and jazz in high school and college as well. So I felt like I could teach somewhat. <laughs> so what how what made you decide to uh to go to school for for music and for engineering and whatnot? Like how why kind of it seemed like you were pretty dead set on it, at least from the description that you're giving me of your, you know, personality and interests and in high school, I feel like if you're the kind of person that gets really into dream theater, it's like, well, you know, at some point you're going to have to get, get a degree in this kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, the dream theater phase kind of stopped like freshman year of high school. So I, mm-hmm. I escaped. Uh, the bass player in the automation says, if I want to listen to Rush, I'll just listen to Rush. Right. That's yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, that's a take. Yeah. I, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're like Rush with some Metallica riffs. Uh, yeah. So I, man, so I ended up graduating high school a year early, like unexpected and didn't know what to do. So I ended up going to community college the fall. I didn't have time to apply anywhere else. So I went to community college in the fall and they had a, um, a music program. And so we started doing theory stuff. And of course I skipped to the back of the book to all the experimental stuff. And there was a Penderecki score for Mm. Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima. And I'd never heard the piece, never, I didn't know who that was, and was just like, what is this? And I got really into that. Um, and so I was just kind of on the course of taking like music theory class, gen eds and stuff, and I didn't know what I was going to do after. I was just, I didn't know what I was doing. 
anyway, saw that score and was like, this is kind of what I want to do. And actually through touring, met someone who told me about the School of the Art Institute of Chicago um, and like their sound art program. And mm. uh, that's how I found out about it. It was just, you know, uh, like a train right away. So um, after that tour, I ended up applying and then ended up going there. And you found it interesting, I'm assuming? Like it, it seemed like it worked out pretty well for you. Yeah, because the other thing I was debating on going to college for was philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so art school was like a nice intersection of the two. I had to take a ton of like philosophy and art history classes. So, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I don't know. Has it really helped me get jobs? I, that's debatable. Um, but uh, it was a really great education. Mm-hmm. Right. I meant more on like an edifying kind of sense rather than a financial. Oh, sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, yeah, I mean. Because the jobs I have had, like teaching, the, one of the places I taught at, I did need to have a college degree in music and and whatever. And the job I have now, I needed a college degree, but I could have gotten that anywhere, you know? <laughs> right. So sure. uh, I'm just, yeah, it, it makes me feel better thinking about it as like, well, I enjoyed it. And then I can justify paying, you know, the monthly payments. What, what kind of stuff do you feel like you learned in that experience that you've since been able to apply to your own music, if anything. Um, yeah, that's hard to, um, there's just so much, uh, mm-hmm. I think editing was one of the biggest things and, you know, editing and revisions. And I think I was able to kind of develop a, a more objective, um, listening position after, you know, I've made something. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, another thing in art school is, Definitely helps you get uh, tougher skin, thicker skin, whatever this thing is. Um, you know, you make something go up in front of, you know, your peers and they just rip it apart in front of you. I did, yeah, a lot of art schools, it's a popularity contest. And uh, sure, <laughs> um, it was way worse than high school in a lot of respects. But that definitely helped me just to not really, it just really helped me not care what people think, which I think I still did a lot when I was when I started going there, uh, and I, one of the, I guess the, uh, one of the other big things was, um, kind of knowing your position in art history before you make something, um, and really mm. thinking about the context in which you are releasing something. That's interesting. Like what, what do you see as the context or the legacy that you're operating in? I mean, one, I would say that we all have everyone that makes music that at least one of the person hears is contributing to the dialogue of art history and and in in some way, you know, and I don't really know. I would like I would I would like to think that I um, tend to push things or experiment in ways that not everyone would want to do want to or or think to necessarily. That's 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 my goal Mm -hmm. in life uh, for art. So I, I, you know. Don't know if I've done that, but that's what I would like to think. As for the context, I think I've kind of always felt like I was operating against uh, what was popular. In, in like a macro sense or just in like a localized, like what your peers are into sense? I think kind of both. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely my peers. Um, you know, growing up, like I never had friends that were into the music that I listened to. I went to shows by myself in high school and, in, you know, like in college. I still go to shows by myself barring COVID. I think the, like the musical interests and stuff that I had were, they just didn't fit in with anyone I knew and still kind of to this day, the, the closest person is, um, the bass player in Lord Automation, Brian, and we p- disagree on way more music than we agree on. <laughs> so, but I think, I think also in terms of like what's going on in music today, I, especially in Chicago, I, we don't fit in at all. Not that we're like doing things, you know, different or like, you know, stand, standing out and or are unique in any way, but just like that kind of heavy music without screaming that's not metal or hardcore does not really fit in. Um, in the Chicago what do you scene. see as like the thing that is happening in Chicago that you're you feel outside of? Definitely like a nostalgia thing. Um, a uh-huh. lot of the bands blowing up in Chicago now, I think are very, especially like eighties throwbacks. There's definitely some like kind of nineties pop punk stuff as well coming back. 
and I think that's kind of a trend just in culture right now, um, not just music, but um, and it makes sense. But uh, yeah, that's I think that to me is like the biggest one that I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going back and listening to the the previous EP, and I was thinking about like the context and like the sound that it has compared to the the new record. And I did catch like there is like some late '90s, early 2000s kind of post-hardcore at the drive-in inspired stuff in there. But like you're describing something more like early '90s, you know. There's like an aesthetic that I I, I feel like when you're connecting it to like a broader thing that's happening in culture, the sort of like baggy clothes early '90s thing that's just like exploding all over the place, and definitely. Yeah what y'all remind me of more is like early 2000s like skinny ties and skinny jeans music (laughs) yeah yeah in a good way in a good way um so i I could i see where what you mean by that beat those being like pretty two distinctly different worlds in a lot of ways yeah there's also a lot of like uh in chicago anyway like dance kind of stuff right like Mm -hmm. uh the drums like you know like every song is like that and a lot of like the like art rock bands are starting to kind of do that now lately too. And um we've always tried to have to never play normal drum beats. Um and that doesn't that, that doesn't always work out. Sometimes that's what the song calls for or whatever. But um mm-hmm. why is that like why do you think you lean towards music that is like rhythmically confusing? That's a good question. I honestly don't know. Uh <laughs> Um, it's, it's, I've been like that as long as I can remember. I mean, like, yeah, hearing dream theater when I was like in fifth grade, I still remember it was, um, Erotomania. Oh yeah. It was the first song. I love that song still. Um, mostly cause James LeBree's not in it, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> easier sell for a lot of people. That's certainly sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And those, those chords on the keyboard, it's just nuts. Um, Anyway, yeah, that was like that was the first thing I heard that was like that. I never, I didn't know what, I didn't know there was anything other than four four. I'm not even sure I knew what that was, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, ever since then, and like, I I catch myself listening to stuff, and if it doesn't have odd meters, I immediately like instinctively like write it off, hmm. and then I have to be like, okay, well that's just stupid. Like you can't like so you can't not like something because there's not odd meters, <laughs> you know. And right. I'm able. That to- seems like a precarious uh mental attitude to have when you're working on hip-hop and r&b records in particular that's for sure. yeah yeah that's for sure uh I, that's something i've had to like fight against my whole life like when i started realizing in high school that i was doing that i was like okay well i can still enjoy things that are in 4-4 you know so that 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 took a while of, of i think i'm still working on that but um yeah other than i i mean i think some of that goes to like a lot of the people I know that listen to music like that, like that have like anxiety disorder, including myself. And huh. I think it's sort of, it's a cathartic listen because it sort of feels like what's going on in my head. You know, all this stuff happening, You like there's like this sense of doom because the meters aren't lining up and you don't know where things are going to land. It feels, it feels like, uh, it feels comforting to me or, 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 or validating. Sure. Yeah. That totally makes sense. I've been listening to a lot of, I mean, I've always been into Meshuggah, but lately I've been like going through a a real thing with them where it's like, I can't stop thinking about their music. (laughs) And I I, like, I realized recently that like, it sort of feels like it, 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 it is because of that, like sort of polyrhythmic thing that they do. It gives me the satisfaction of having that like contrast and rhythms and then them like lining up into place at a certain point. You know, it's like looking at like a really, really beautifully arranged bookshelf yeah. where like everything fits in perfectly. You can see behind which me I was like, actually going to comment on. Your bookshelf is, is very pretty. Thank you. It looks great. Um, yeah, I feel like this is this is my like Meshuggah song in the background of my <laughs> Zoom interviews. <laughs> um, but you're right. Like there is something that is kind of like gratifying and there is like an emotional component of listening to music that feels completely off the wall and nutso in a lot of ways that sort of allows you the space to feel like well 
that sort of sensation internally is not alien you know yeah if someone can can represent it in music then that means that it, it it's not just like some sort of like personal demon it is like it exists on a, a, a wider scale you know? yeah definitely definitely for sure it's interesting that you mentioned that you've you do singing lessons because and I don't mean this as an insult. I like this part of the band, but listening to Lower Automation, it is not like the kind of voice that you'd expect to be giving lessons. How did you settle on that particular <laughs> vocal style? Uh, for Lower Automation? Yeah. I don't know. Um, that was, so I studied classical voice for in high school. Not that I'm good at it, but it's something that I still practice almost every day. It's some, mm-hmm. I just like really enjoy it. It's, it's super soothing. Yeah, um, so that might have had something to do with it because I was in bands where I was like screaming and stuff in high school. But I think some at some point in high school I realized, or maybe it was college, that I didn't really enjoy screaming. It didn't it didn't feel honest for me, and it, yeah, it just it it didn't. Uh, I didn't feel compelled to do it anymore. I felt it, I felt compelled to be to sing in an aggressive way or an angry way or something, but or panicked way, um, but mm-hmm. never. You, with screaming and so that kind of led me off into like well how do i do this um in a way that's convincing it doesn't sound weak or boring or you know what i mean um or like ill-fitting to the music yeah exactly or, yeah exactly um and so i think part of that was some of the bands that i grew up listening to again we're going to go back into the christian side of things so bear with me for for a minute here uh van dead poetic um okay yeah they had this, you know, their big album had screaming and stuff. And then the singer right before the next album came out was like, I don't think I can make myself scream anymore. I just don't feel like it. And it was like the had like this yelling stuff on it that I thought was really cool. Another band that they used to tour with was uh, Project 86. And same kind of thing. There wasn't any screaming. Mm-hmm. It was this kind of yelling thing. Sort of kind of like Snapcase. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And so that, for some reason, that like when I when I heard that stuff for the first time, that felt I felt it more than I'd ever felt listening to screaming. Hmm. If that makes sense, it had some kind of emotional connection with me. And the I'm not emotional sure tenor of it that you're describing does seem to like line up with the the kind of like panicked energy that you're talking about gravitating towards in the music. Sure. You know, like there's something about screaming in particular that is like so gung ho and so like taken to the max that. I think that a lot of bands that do like purely harsh vocals are trying to create either some degree of like invulnerability or invincibility or some kind of like superpowerness. That's a great to way it, to put it. Yeah. Or are going for some kind of like otherworldly inhuman kind of sound. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Where whereas like you're kind of tapping into something that feels a bit more like already on one leg, sort of you know, gas is near empty and just kind of like <laughs> freaking out about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That sounds about right. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's, that's part of it too. And, um, I loved being able to hear, this is a very ignorant thing to say, but I loved being able to hear people's voices when they were yelling versus screaming. Yes. Like, and, and yeah. I don't mean it. I just, I just mean like the pitch you can, you can distinguish, I think, Maybe it's just because I don't listen to a whole lot of screaming stuff, but um, or harsh vocal stuff. But I, I feel like I can distinguish better between people who yell versus people who scream. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where I feel like if you zoom in on any one subject, you can start making the distinctions. But yes. you're right; like the, it, it, it's closer to someone's speaking voice than yeah. you know straight up like inhale death growls or something <laughs> like that. Where hopefully, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah and so that's. Yeah, if I spent more time with it, I'm sure that I would. Obviously, and I still can distinguish. Obviously, there's there's people that that sound very different who scream. Like the dude in Dillinger Escape Plan sounds way different than Job for a Cowboy or whatever. You know, like mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I've never listened to Job for a Cowboy really, so I don't know where that came from. Um, but uh, <laughs> some MySpace memory dredged yeah. up from. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, I'm gonna have to think about that later. Yeah. I, I, you know, there's definitely differences, I guess, um, that, I, that I, I think that I would be able to differentiate over time. It's like, you know, tasting flavors of different coffees, you know? Mm, yeah, totally. Um, you have to really zoom in to kind of find them. Um, but anyway, I just, I love the human voice and I love, I hate being creepy, but like, I've loved, you know, like working on zoom and getting to listen to all these people's voices, um, like in staff meetings and stuff. 
it's just it's just amazing how different they all are and it's it's you know they come from these two tiny little things in your throat that just hit each other and it's just it's incredible to me so that might be kind of why i i like the more you know quote natural kind of voice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, no, that totally makes sense it's interesting that there's so much of like a physical presence in the things that have led you to make the music that you do you know like i was thinking about how a lot of like like that issue with your nerves is fucking terrifying i feel like that's like a musician's worst nightmare in so many ways but i'm thinking about like the way that electronic music and also like to bring up a band like dillinger which you know crosses both of those lines they clearly have a a pretty solid education in electronic music from that era they're it, it imitates a certain degree of like some sort of internal issue, f- like breaking down or falling mm, apart, yeah. like some kind of like, hu- like biomechanical failure in some way. I don't know. That just strikes me as like kind of fascinating that you're emphasizing these things that are so physical about music, like the, the equipment that humans use to make it in the human voice and like kind of leaning into that degree of like uh bio fallibility just if you know what I mean. Sure, definitely. Like, I've never thought about that. That's a really, especially with in relation to Dillinger, I think that's very poignant. Um, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I, I liked Dillinger in high school when I wasn't really listening to metal was he's like, Greg, but, oh, I guess uh, the first thing or two, like so, it sounds like something is really wrong. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> right, yeah. The yeah, stakes I, are very high, like yeah. immediately. Yeah, and it's, because um, Greg has a very unique voice where like the, he's not really I wouldn't even call it screaming I'm not you know what like mm-hmm. it is more of a it's closer to yelling yeah. than straight out like screaming and then he does like the sort of like intensely like the pitched harsh vocal yeah, thing which is do. like that's the the ultimate superpower for a heavy metal singer yeah yeah you know I, I was thinking about I, I don't know I don't came up a lot when I was listening to both of the new record and the last EP thinking about the, the like the legacy that they've sort of left behind of being this band that was like in the math core world, but also writing like alternative rock hooks, which yeah. I think was something that was like way more prevalent on, you know, the EP before this album. Uh, and I noticed this album seems like way more balls to the wall and way more like pure chaos in a lot of ways. Was that like a conscious move to sort of slide away from the more alt rock melodic deftonesy kind of stuff that was on the EP? I actually, I don't know that it was conscious. Um, I remember before we started writing this telling brian like well i would like to i would like to do more singing parts more melodic stuff <laughs> it didn't really work out yeah uh no I, I um sorry i'm trying to think i really don't think there was anything conscious like that um but i the only thing that i think i, re- or I remember having conversations about was we just wanted to make an album that was uncomfortable to listen to and kind of ugly uh that was kind of our goal and i i mean i don't i it could, it could definitely be way uglier and way more uncomfortable, but that was kind of where our thinking was. Why did you want to make a record that way? Like what, what inspired you to kind of like, I mean, it's in line with the description that you've had about like wanting to make like discordant music, but why specifically did you want to like push that discomfort and ugliness for this record? So I think, I think a lot of it came, that came from the stuff I was writing about for this record. A lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, actually. Yeah. Probably at least half of the lyrics were written before the music. And that's mm. typically not how that's not how any of our songs have really started. Sometimes a lot of times there's a there's an idea for a lyric and then an idea for a song that I kind of marry at some point, or like I have this idea for a lyric, so I write the music first and then I'll write come in and finish the lyrics. Mm-hmm. For like for this, um a good sh- yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's it's a lot of the songs where lyrics were written first. And then music came after it. That's interesting. Why did you why did you start doing it that way this time around? That also was not a conscious decision. It was just from from journaling and writing a lot. And um, I don't even know what I was reading when we, when we were working on this stuff. But uh, yeah, it just, just kind of came from I think just journaling, um, writing stuff that I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm like repeating myself here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, were you yeah. like what time? how long ago did you start writing the lyrics was like, were you writing this during lockdown or before 2020? Um, both it's, but I think it all started, started the spring of 2019. Mm-hmm. Wait. Yeah. Spring of 2019. 
um, where some of the lyrics were started and then just kind of on and off through here. And I just kept, kept the, the ones that I liked or the ideas that I liked. And like the last song on the album was specifically was like, okay, I'm going to write. I sat down and was like, I'm going to write music for these words. The other ones were a little bit more loose. Like I would kind of sit with the lyrics and, and think about them and then write something, whatever came to me. And sometimes that song, those lyrics were thrown out or that music was thrown out. But for Ruiner, it was like, all right, I have these lyrics. I'm going to sit down and write something. And that's what, what happened. I'm not sure why that happened. Uh, I think I was just at, at that point, I was just writing a lot. And so I don't, I don't have the lyric sheet for the record and I'm like terminally terrible at picking out lyrics. I'm sure you can't understand general. it anyway. I'm sure no one can understand it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of, what kind of stuff you said that you were writing about some pretty like dark and heavy shit. What, what were you writing about? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, one of the songs called old Sparky is about, um, I shouldn't say about, but definitely inspired by the death penalty and prison system mm-hmm. most it's mostly i guess about how in america we really really or the u.s i should say we really hate criminals of all mm-hmm. kinds we hate people that are convicted of crimes that may or may not be guilty we hate it's just it just goes on and on and on and and it's just easier to kind of throw people out and not deal with the underlying issues or face the fact that everyone is kind of capable of doing these things and really that it's just kind of luck that you know you are on the outside rather than in jail Mm -hmm. and that has that's actually something i've been really thinking about and reading about and stuff for the last couple years and that might have been a catalyst for a lot of the the music as well like kind of subconsciously so there's that like what what authors just just to Give some context. Uh, I'd have to really. um, I would guess, like, given your uh, philosophy background, that there's some sort of Foucault going on here somewhere. I've actually never read Foucault. Okay. Yeah. No, I know that's on. I've really that's embarrassing to admit. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Honestly, I think at that time I was reading, and I don't even. It might even be. It might even been Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And uh, Miriam Kaba has a book that just came out this last year. I can't, I am so bad with names. There's a, there's a really great book called No Way Out. Um, that's not necessarily about the prison system, but sort of, uh, an economical prison, I guess you could call it, um, in some ways about under, under, uh, underfunded, underserved communities and how that kind of the issues that that causes. I cannot remember the writer's name. So it sounds like there's like a lot of what you're describing is like a lot of larger sociological issues were the impetus for the lyrics on this record. Is that fair to say, or are there also more like personal or yeah. individualized it, songs too? Yeah. Like Ruiner is a, is a personal song that's not political or, or social in any way. Dread is another one. That's that song is, is the worst title ever. It actually is just about the feeling of dread. If you've ever mm-hmm. seen, uh, have you ever seen a serious man? Yes, multiple times. Love that one. It's such a good movie. Um, The last scene of that movie, Brian and I, the bass player in Lord Armation, him and I talk about that scene all the time. Mostly me talking about that scene. I love that, like the tornado coming Mm -hmm. on the parking. Oh my God, I love that. Um, That song was very inspired by that. Mm -hmm. That, that, when I saw that scene in that movie, um, that did, like, that connected with me on a way that almost nothing ever has. And um, like any kind of artistic thing um, ever has, I kind of was just thinking about that feeling and wanted to write something sort of about that. So I was sort of inspired by that scene. And mm-hmm. um, it's not political in any way um, or even social. But certainly like a lot of the the social or political issues that you're talking about can add to a feeling of dread. Definitely, you know? definitely. Like, yeah. These, do, these kind of things do feed into each other. The one single that you have out at the time of this recording, I was listening to it. I was thinking of going back to the voice thing, like how it seems pretty clearly about like grappling with like a certain kind of like concept of masculinity. Um, yeah. And there was a, a nice sort of dovetailing of like this more, uh, this less exaggerated macho, like non-macho harsh vocal style 
paired with that felt like, oh, this feels like a real like statement of purpose in a lot of ways for this band. Hmm. There's like a, a, a mirroring of content and form and like the, the lyrics themselves and also how you're delivering them. Interesting. Yeah. I, I actually hadn't really thought about that. Um, that song I think is more about, it's not about Trump. I've been asked that a few times. Um, I guess it could, it, it could be, it could be, huh. but uh, it's more, it's more about um, I think hiding. So that was actually inspired by this. Um, again, I'm terrible with names. This case where I think it was in the eighties. It was, it was some kind of court case where, the public defender accidentally revealed the victim's name, who was a, who was a minor at the time, and it caused a lot of issues. Okay. And um, or it might have just been through paperwork or something. And so I was just thinking about how we have all of these systems in um, politically too and socially, but it also kind of I think that those systems really reflect what we how we interact with each other on a person to person basis. And how we kind of build up these these systems and walls to protect us, and then really they just hurt and kill other people. But I can definitely see the the uh, the masculine thing too. I think I was thinking about that throughout the whole writing of this album. Mm-hmm. Um, the first. Oh wait, are you talking about Father Shirt as a dress on me or comb over? Yeah, because that's the one that's up on your. Band Never mind. Right we're now. talking about Father. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, cause comb over came out like last week or something on, ah, yeah, streaming. That, okay. this makes way more sense. More allowed. I, now okay. I, I'm, it all makes sense to me now. <laughs> my bad. I should have clarified. That's my bad. Um, yes. Father Shirt is just on me. That is exactly what it's about. You're right. The, uh, and like the high pitched voice. Um, I didn't, I think that that's like a, a sort of subconscious kind of subconscious kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really, I didn't really think about it. Um, but I, but that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I like that actually. I like that a lot. And I'm sorry I confused that with the. the <laughs> no, it's great. I, mean, I got two answers for one question. I, you know, <laughs> very efficient use of time. Um, <laughs> so I was I was reading that, and just you know following you guys on on Instagram and, and watching along the recording process, it seemed like it came together like very very quickly once you started moving on it. What were the plans for this record before 2020, and then how did reality end up working out? So we we actually didn't really have plans for it. Um, I had started uh, writing parts. Dread was actually the first song written. And then we had a few others that we threw out. We knew that we wanted to make an EP in 2020. And so we went and recorded Father's Shirt is a Dress on Me. At um, We recorded the drums at our, our new drummer, Andy. Uh, one of his friends was working at a studio, and so we were able to get in there to record drums. And then we just we always record everything else ourselves. So we did that as just kind of a way to, to have something to put out. Cause we didn't know when we were going to get around to recording. And then all of a sudden songs just kept coming together and we were really only going to make another EP. And then I think because of the lockdown last March, I ended up having all this time to write and ended up with, you know, 10 songs instead of five and, uh, or 12 instead of five. And we liked 10 of them. So we kept those. Mm-hmm. So honestly, I don't. It, without the lockdown, I don't know that it would have happened. And so, is your like writing process fairly like solitary, or do you guys like collaborate? Like, what's what is the the process like to finish a, a song? Typically, I not always, but typically, I'll write. I'll write the song, like the drum and the bass parts, and then we'll kind of come at it together and edit it. So how mm-hmm. it, how it functioned or how it worked this time was, I would write everything and then we would, you know, send it to the guys and then we would, we would talk about it, um, on the phone. And so, you know, we started with like five songs or whatever, and we would just go over each one and talk, you know, have like these hours long phone calls and just kind of go over all the sections, what we thought of them, whatever, should we just take this out? Should we put it back in? How does the drum part here feel? You know, all of that stuff. And so really it it comes more, it becomes more collaborative at that point when we have something kind of settled down. I think when you're writing music in different meters, it's really hard to just kind of like jam. Uh, sure. I don't, you have I, to I don't think I have something written down somewhere. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know. And we don't have a whiteboard and we should, but you know, <laughs> so that's been something we've all been like, yeah, let's get a whiteboard. And someone's like, okay, I'll do it. And then they never do. And then someone else says they're going to get it. And then they never do. And we just never have one. But, uh, yeah, that's been going on for, you know, a year and a half now. 
so yeah that's typically how it works is there's there's some kind of basis mm-hmm. and then we're just kind of going off of that and so it, it sounds like you know you're doing a lot of the writing and collaborating remotely did you practice much before getting into the studio like what was how did you make that happen yeah so we we had like these 10 songs or i guess nine because father shirt was already recorded but we had these other nine songs they were mostly ready to go like last June-ish. And then we started every week um, meeting up and wearing masks and being really far apart and just running through them. Usually like two songs a week or something like that. And we recorded it last, the end of last August. So we had like um, two and a half months to kind of go over everything um but we had already kind of edited it or edited all the songs so by the time we were getting together to play them we were really just learning them and then seeing what else we needed to do um and of course there were changes made at that point as well even while we were recording but pretty pretty much we had two and a half months of where everything was pretty solid this might be a a really odd question um so if if there's not a good answer I'll understand, but is there a difference in the type of edits that were made from the remote conversations versus the types of edits that were made once you started playing the songs in the room? That's a really good question, actually. Um, yeah, I, I was actually kind of thinking about this the other day. Um, the The remote sessions or phone calls, whatever, um, those were all like sort of macro edits. Like, this part sucks. Let's get rid of this. And then when uh-huh. we got together and started playing stuff, it was more like okay, that hit feels weird. Let's kind of rearrange that. Or that note isn't right. What do we do here? And so they were much smaller adjustments. I don't, you know, I think part of that is we had, we were with the song for more time. And so, you know, but I think a huge part of that too is you really can't adjust those small little things as well on the phone call, you know? Mm-hmm. No one knows what snare hit you're talking about, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, so, yeah. And it's just a There's nightmare. There's an immediacy of doing it in the room and yeah. being like, the one you just played was not good. Yes, you know? yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that, I mean, we did also rewrite whole parts and stuff. But I mm-hmm. feel like the vast majority of, of edits when we got together were much smaller. Uh, and then you mentioned you, you started recording it in like August 2020. And yeah, again, from what I saw, it seemed like you guys kind of burned through it pretty quickly. At least the tracking process was mm-hmm. that, is that just Instagram or is that actually? The, no, that's the accurate. Truth? We, we, um, we booked a cabin, like an Airbnb in, uh, the middle of nowhere, Michigan for, I think we were there for five days. So we, we wanted to find a place that had Brian and I had been wanting to do this for the whole existence of the band and our other drummer was never able to, or wasn't into it, but, um, Andy was like all about it. So we got a cabin with like a really high, it was like an A-frame cabin, a really high ceiling. Mm-hmm. And um, like most, it was basically all wood inside. So the drums sounded incredible in there. It was it was super fun to play in that room. So anyway, we ended up booking this place through Airbnb. Did We didn't tell the guy what we were doing there. We told the him best. we played, we yeah. told him we were musicians and we wanted to play. And he's like, oh, that's fine. So <laughs> um <laughs> We we made sure we kept everything in good order. We took pictures of everything, all the furniture and stuff before we moved it. So we tried to be responsible. But yeah, so we we just kind of we got there, we set up, and we started tracking drums at like five p.m. one day or something. And we would basically every day from like ten a.m. to one a.m. Mm-hmm. for the next mm-hmm. kind of five days. So yeah, it was pretty quick. And then when I got home, I I did a few more vocal kind of things. Uh, uh, we had a few few more vocal tracks left. And I think that was it. So yeah, that was like definitely the the least amount of time I've ever ever recorded in. Do you feel like that is something that you'd like to to emulate going forward, having that kind of like compressed schedule, or do you prefer having like a bit of a longer frame of time to to put something together in? I'm not. Yeah, I, I think it could go either way. The, the reason I um it was actually really hard for me to to record this album. We left a lot of things up in the air until last minute like specific parts or little things right like what Mm -hmm. what exactly am i going to play here and so we let things be way more off the cuff i I, that's not my personality at all and so that was very difficult for me i I, that was that was something i had to really try to do Mm -hmm. was like okay i'm not going to force this like vocal part or whatever um we're just going to let it be and we're you know when we get up to the cabin, we'll play through it and see how it feels. If it doesn't feel right, we'll fix it in the moment, and that'll be what it is. 
yeah, I've never done anything like that before. So it was actually really terrifying to do that and only have, you know, four days or five days to really get into it. Um, and then that was it, you know? So, uh, emotionally I did not enjoy it very much at all, uh, or that aspect of it, but I think I would definitely like to do, try that again. Cause it, I, it made us do, um, do things that I didn't think we would do. Yeah. I feel like now that you've like done the trial by fire for it, that would, cause I don't know, at least in my experience, like it's just interesting. I, I find both sides of it to be, have compelling cases, like doing it like quick and dirty and getting it done and leaving it, letting it be just a document of that moment. And then, you know, here I am like working over songs that I started writing in 2017 that, you know, will probably come out next year, sure, <laughs> you yeah. know, like both. I, I see the values of, of both, but I'm just, I was just curious to see like how your impression of that kind of like run and gun process was. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, I was, I'm really into Depeche mode. And so, which is sometimes embarrassing to admit, but I was watching all the, they have like documentaries for every album that they've had, mm-hmm. like all their big albums. They're all on YouTube now. And so I, like this winter, I was like binging all those. And I forget what album it was where the guy who owns da- uh, Daniel Miller, I think his name is, he owns Mute Records, the label they're on, was talking about like, they spent way too long making this album. They work better if they just go in and go out you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that that's really interesting to me because i've i just am not inclined to work that way i think a lot of people who are artists aren't yeah it does seem like a particular personality type that yeah. is able to like let it go that quickly yeah and i've always been very on the fence with it like to go back to to dillinger like that's how um like in interviews with greg he always says like or he said like oh i don't write lyrics until like right before we're recording because he wants to be in that moment and that makes me like Honestly, he's not a very good lyricist and he could be a much better one if he, I think if he actually practiced and, you know, I mean, he has some, he has some lyrics that are, are pretty cool, but, uh, there's some that are like, were embarrassing for me to listen to. Like, but, um, so I've just always thought about that. Like, why, why are we afraid to put in time to fix things? But mm-hmm. then at what point is it? you're just fixing things way too much and you're just kind of, you're sucking the life out of everything because you're just compressing everything. Exactly. Yeah. I, th- th- it's funny that you mentioned lyrics specifically because I, a friend of mine always brings up this uh, conversation between Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen where like, I forget which Bob Dylan song they're talking about, but apparently he wrote it like super quick. And then Bob Dylan asks Leonard Cohen about hallelujah. And he's got like binders full of yeah. unused verses, you know, just like, endless variations of possible lyrics to use for a particular song that you'd work on for like years. And I feel like, yeah, those are the two archetypes, you know, those are the two ways that it can go. You've mentioned now that you've mentioned a few times of like particular lyricists that you do not particularly <laughs> enjoy. I'm, I'm curious just for context, like who are some of your favorite lyricists? So I think off the top of my head, uh, my favorite band of all time is public enemy. So Chuck D is like my favorite, my favorite rapper. Mm-hmm. Um, a Wilhelm scream their first few albums the lyrics i think are incredible i do i definitely do like some of the lyrics on ira works for Dillinger. um project 86 uh that was a huge influence on me lyrically um isis the band not the terrorist organization totally yeah i do i had in high school i had um this is also not cool but my favorite isis album is in the absence of truth see there are people that are just like i've met a few of them and like they they are out there i am not one of them but i respect <laughs> the in the absence of truth true guard like that there are yeah. people that are like really into that record it's a strange strange album but it, yeah i i got really into the lyrics and like the thematic content of it more than i got into the music like i i'm is my copy of house of leaves visible in the shot i can't tell but like that i got that book yeah. because isis mentioned it you know oh, okay and cool yeah like all of the sort of like postmodernist stuff that came up on that record, like real game changer for me on a conceptual level, even if sure. that album's music didn't quite hit the same spot. Yeah. I, I loved the, um, well, anyway, so I, I had the, uh, in the wrist, what was the song? The wrist of Kings uh, wrist of Kings. Yeah. Wrist of Kings. I had that, t- that, that song shirt and it had all the lyrics printed out. Mm-hmm. It was like one of my favorite shirts ever. Um, yeah, that album, I, I love all of the chanting stuff he did, and I know that that was not popular, and I know 
now he said that he didn't even like it and that that kind of hurt you know hurt a little bit when i read that um because <laughs> i just thought that was so cool i'd never heard anything like that. i mean i grew up in a in mm-hmm. a lutheran church so like i heard chanting all the time and i actually still really enjoy it like gregorian chants and stuff and there's actually different kinds but i don't know the names of the other kinds but uh <laughs> yeah i just thought that was so sweet again like to hear this like really heavy stuff um and not screaming was really interesting to me Mm -hmm. yeah i've i understand like you know you you listen to sumac now and you're like oh i get why you wouldn't like those last two isis records because it's like the exact opposite of sumac (laughs) but um i i quite enjoy wavering radiant production aside i think that those songs are fucking phenomenal that Um, is that's my second favorite yeah so you're just like a late isis guy this is that's interesting that's i mean so i think i was a freshman or sophomore when in the absence of truth came out and mm-hmm. that was that was like life-changing for me too uh, more more on a musical i love the drums on that album and um yeah he he goes fucking ape shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> like and he's going from like panopticon to that you could tell that he was just in the practice space for hours you yeah know, in between those yeah. two records yeah he's yeah the drums on that album yeah i don't i just Wrist of Kings is one of my favorite songs ever, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, as uncool as, as it is to admit that. So, um, but yeah, I I think, so I In the Absence of Truth was my first ISIS album. And then I think I got Wavering Radiant when it came out. And I don't know that I listened to any of the earlier stuff really that much until after Wavering Radiant was out. So I think I, think I got kind of biased. Maybe if I heard the other stuff first, I would be more into that those two albums are huge for me in high school Mm -hmm. going back to uh the new lower automation record it seemed like you guys were like poised to put it out a bit sooner than it has come out and that it got pushed back a bit what was the reason for the delay so yeah so it was supposed to come out in like february or early march sometime in there and then zagima beach records wanted they were initially just going to do tapes for us and then they Mm -hmm. wanted to put it out on vinyl and so we had conversations about you know how that would look like and so we just the best thing to do was to delay it to line up more with the the vinyl stuff how'd you get linked up with that that label i'm pretty sure that we had just i i messaged it's run by two two guys named dave it's canada dave and then the other dave is in a in a band called crowning in chicago oh yeah okay yeah uh, I didn't realize it was like that close to to home. I knew of like the Canadian part of it, but huh, that's yeah, I so I didn't know about the I didn't know that that um, Chicago Dave was part of it. Uh, yeah, until later. But anyway, um, so I was messaging the Canadian Dave, and we were talking about tapes because we were looking for someone to help us out with tapes. Mm-hmm. And so, and then they agreed, and then um, wanted to put us out on Zagima Beach, and I hope I'm saying that right, by the way. And then. Um, uh, do vinyl mm-hmm. so it that just kind of happened um just randomly one night i got a, a message from him saying that hey we want to we want to do it on vinyl too i was not expecting that so um it's a supreme vote of confidence for a small label to do that for sure yeah definitely i mean we we couldn't really afford that on our own so mm-hmm. yeah it was it was just it, i mean it was um it was really cool we did not expect that um and then it was after that that i found out that Dave from Crowning was was the he runs the U.S. store. Um, they're both like two terrifically nice, cool people, and so it's been really fun to get to know them and work with them. But yeah, so that's why that's why I got delayed. Gotcha. So, are what are the plans for the record and for the band going forward now that it's uh, I guess by the time this comes out to be released fairly soon? Yeah, what what's on the horizon for you? We're we're still kind of waiting to see what the covid situations kind of shaping up to be um we did we have booked a show in august mm-hmm. but uh i don't know we I, the vinyl is supposed to get in sometime in the fall so but i'm not, I'm not sure when we're going to start touring again that that is definitely part of the plan but i don't know when that's going to happen are you doing any like videos or any kind of like other stuff for these tunes or is it just other than touring on to the next one uh, yeah, we have we actually have two videos done um, mm-hmm. that we're still figuring out when we're going to put them out. And then we filmed Dave in Chicago is actually a really good. He's really good with video. So mm-hmm. uh, he 
um, filmed us playing the album. Um, so we have like a live set filmed of the album and uh, we're actually just finishing that up this weekend. Um, but I don't, I don't know when that's coming out either. So uh, we have some stuff to put out. We're just not, not sure. And I know we're actually doing one other video next month, but I'm, yeah. Um, as for dates and stuff, we have no, I, yeah, don't really know at the moment, but that's, gotcha. that's part of the, part of the plan. Are you working on any new material or just focusing on this stuff for now? We have started like, um, talking about it and kind of playing through stuff at practice, but we, we, um, haven't really done a whole lot. Uh, just, just because after we did, we recorded the album, it, it felt it felt like we should kind of stay away from each other. Like it was a responsible thing to do because, you know, the vaccine wasn't out yet. So after we all got vaccinated, we were much more comfortable and, you know, coming together and playing. So Mm -hmm. we started kind of talking about stuff a little bit more. Um, so we have some stuff, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure that that'll pick up again pretty soon. Awesome. Well, that pretty much covers it for me. I have had a blast talking over the the music and getting to learn about more of your, your influences and whatnot. Cause I mean, I feel like we've just been like social media acquaintances for a while and it's been nice to, to get to know you a bit better yeah, definitely. over the course Thank you. of the conversation, yeah, you man. Definitely. Excellent. Well, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Derek, for joining me. You can find links to Rural Automation's music in the show notes as well as links to my own music. If you liked this episode, it'd be great if you could give the podcast a good rating and review, or if you could send it to someone else who you think would find the conversation interesting. You can reach me at laminiformsband at gmail.com. Until next time.